Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5 featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, what did the Emperor whisper in your ear before he died? Send nudes. (laughs) (laughs) I can't follow that. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) <laughs> see now that just makes what he actually whispered even more damning you are damned to hell <laughs> oh. oh jesus was, i was struck by inspiration so tonight uh so tonight dear listeners we are uh covering episodes eight and nine of season two a race through dark places and the coming of shadows we have a season title episode. So, you know, that's just going to be a totally normal person visits the station, no consequence whatsoever episode. Yep, nothing nothing at all happens in those. Yeah, I'm sure it'll be a, like, a light, breezy episode. But first, let's talk about some telepaths and let's talk about some fucking psychops. All psychops are bastards. APAB. Something like that. I've got episode eight of season two here, A Race Through Dark Places. This one's written by JMS and directed by Jim Johnston. We open not on B5, but on Mars with our good old friend Bester performing an interrogation on another telepath. Uh, He's trying to get the deets on an underground railroad underground railroad for rogue telepaths and uh to do so he straight up murders the dude with a deep scan but he manages to catch the info he needs at the last moment uh and treats us to the best bester gif of all time where he holds the information in his fist and makes a jerk off motion uh unsurprising to all of us viewers he's learned that he needs to go to babylon five Bester arrives at the station and explains the situation to the command staff. There's an underground railroad ferrying telepaths from Earth to the outer colonies, where the core doesn't have a hold on them. This railroad is centered on B5, and Bester is here to shut it down. The command staff are unenthusiastic, but agree to work with him because they're obliged to uphold the law. After Bester leaves, Ivanova notes that Sheridan should check the files on Bester, because... This isn't the first time he's shown up on the station chasing after a rogue telepath, and it went real well last time. Bester and Talia have a walk and talk, and he reassures her that no, he's definitely not scanning anyone without their consent, because that would be wrong and against the law. But also, she shouldn't mind if he scans her, because she doesn't have anything to hide, right? Bester then gets spooked by the word murderer, murderer, being projected into his mind. Uh, And the two part ways. 
Talia later is chilling in her lingerie-esque pajamas, and Bester calls her up and gives a rather insincere apology for being a jerk earlier, and they agree to meet for breakfast the next morning. We then get a brief clip show reminding us all about what happened last season when Bester was last here, uh, and Talia shows off her gift from Ironheart by telekinetically embedding her lucky penny in a wall. I guess she's really pissed at Bester, right? She wonders why Bester hasn't seen this in her mind since he scanned her twice today. The next morning's breakfast features Bester continuing to be slimy, this time asking Talia to keep an eye on the station personnel and report if she hears anything about President Santiago's death. His sliminess is rudely interrupted, though, by an attempt on his life. Bester shoots and kills two of the attackers and gets away, but Talia is captured, a fact he doesn't even realize until he speaks to Sheridan and Garibaldi and is like, I don't know, I assume she escaped, I guess, I don't fucking care, it's not like she's anyone important. Garibaldi flips out, uh, but agrees to use any information that he can from the two corpses to intensify his search. Talia, meanwhile, wakes up in the custody of the Underground Railroad. She makes a rather perfunctory attempt to get them to rejoin the Corps, but instead is encouraged to listen to their stories uh, of Corps assassinations, medical experiments, and violations of bodily autonomy. The stories are very chilling, and Talia is very upset by them, and rightfully so. Back with the station staff, Franklin tells Sheridan that he has a message from the leader of the railroad that Talia is safe and that the leader wishes to speak to Sheridan. When the captain arrives at their arranged meeting point, it turns out that Franklin is in fact said leader. Sheridan is pissed as hell that Franklin has done all this behind his back, but then Talia appears and tells Sheridan that he should listen to the rogue telepath stories too. Garibaldi, meanwhile, has tracked down their presumed location and arranges to go there with Bester, who then entirely skips the plan and heads to down below to confront the rogue telepaths immediately. With Bester on the way, the group has to think fast and uh, they come up with a plan. Bester arrives to find the telepaths holding hands, Talia alongside them, planning to join power and break past his, his defenses. It doesn't work, however, and Talia breaks contact with the group and joins Bester in gunning down the rest of the telepaths. She says that she knows where her loyalties lie. The core is mother. The core is father. And the two go their separate ways before security arrives on the scene. Except... That's not what happened. We cut to all the telepaths holding hands still... Um, watched by a confused Sheridan who comments that Bester simply stood in the room for a few minutes and then left. Talia explains that the earlier scene was a fiction they projected into his mind because all of them together were strong enough. Franklin agrees to move the railroad away from B5 since the station is too hot now anyway. And we get a final scene with Talia and the leader of the railroad who wonders if she'll be able to keep Bester out of her mind. Uh, and informs her that she and Ironheart's gift are what tipped the balance and made that illusion possible. Talia sees Buster off the station. Uh, he's very disappointed that Sheridan isn't as friendly to the core as he's supposed to be. And he's not able to scan Talia on the way out. There's a, there's a weird moment and expression there. 
Finally, Talia heads to Ivanova's quarters with a bottle of wine and two glasses, saying that she's reevaluating her relationship with Psycor. She takes off her gloves and badge, and the two of them sit down to talk. Or talk. This episode has a couple of chunks of B-plot. The first is the Sheridan and Ivanova versus the man plot. <laughs> EarthGov wants to force them to either pay rent on their quarters or move to smaller quarters, uh, perhaps without an honest-to-God real hot water shower. And Sheridan goes from 0 to 100 on fuck EarthGov in approximately one nanosecond. During this saga, the two are locked out of their quarters and forced to camp out in Sheridan's office, where we learn that he is vaguely insufferable and that he snores. Ultimately, Sheridan pays their rent on their quarters by diverting funds from the combat readiness budget on the principle that he's not ready for combat unless he's gotten a good night's sleep and presumably a honest-to-God shower with hot running water. The other B-plot intersects with this one. Delenn approaches Sheridan with a desire to learn more about human culture and suggests that the two have dinner. Sheridan makes reservations at a fancy restaurant, and Delenn shows up in a human-style dress looking like a million bucks. The ensuing dinner is very cute. The two chat about pets and humor and learn that maybe the two species have more in common than they thought, perhaps beyond even their souls being shared. Uh, where the where the insufferable comes in uh, with the other B-plot is that Sheridan is super revved up by the dinner and accosts Ivanova with a number of very bad jokes that he presumably learned from Delenn. And that's an, that's an episode. There's a lot going on. This episode could not be more tonally fucking wild. Oh, yeah. It's like bodily autonomy being violated by your oppressive, you know, autocratic... A government agency? Wacky dinner hijinks. Midbari <laughs> genocide jokes. It's just... Okay, I, I want to restate this, but the dress that Delenn shows up to dinner in is this nice sleeve number. It is fucking... It rocks. It's a Mira Furlan looks amazing in that dress. It's got like... It's got like a... In tight at the neck and then like opens out to be wider um on the chest and like it's just it's just really really a solid look sheridan looks like somebody hit him in the back of the head with a cricket bat when he sees her (laughs) and he doesn't stop looking like a smitten kitten for like the uh, i mean at a minimum till the end of season three like i don't think he gets over that for a good 40 episodes. Yeah, yeah. It's great. They they stop all pretense of being like, is this going to be a thing we're going to do? Are we going to do this? And they're like, yeah, we're going to, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Which I think is great. And speaking, speaking of characters slash actors who have good on-screen chemistry with one another, Sheridan and Delenn slash Boxletner and Furlan really, really do well together on screen. Yeah. Yeah, they have a very easy, chem- uh, like a very easy chemistry, which I like, yeah. as opposed to Talia and Susan, whose chemistry is less easy than a little spicy. Yeah, we get, we get a little bit of the of the the, the build up to what we're going to see at the end of the season. Uh, it's because we're this is apparently the fashion episode, but uh, I mean, a lot of a sleep number is um, 
Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it's the I mean, I'm expecting company sleep number. Yeah, it's it's like the dark blue satin. Um, yeah. Talia's sleep number is also real spicy, and there's that there's that moment that's kind of gross where like Bester like she where she like turns on the comms and I don't know who she was expecting when she opens up the video comms channel and like is in like her bra. But then sees that it's Bester, and she's like, must cover up with robe. But, like, who was she expecting to be calling then That to see her bra there? I'm thankful that we have not progressed to a society point where, like, every call is a video call, or most calls are video calls, because there would be some very unfortunate things that would have happened in quarantine over the last 10 months. (laughs) (laughs) I like that we've progressed to a point in society where calling people is no longer... De rigueur. Like these days, if when people call me, it's my assumption is that something is very bad going on. Yeah. Messaging has become the norm, at least in my world. Mm-hmm. I'm all about that. I I am super into all the romantic hijinks that go on in this episode. As opposed to the the, you know the, the psychor. Gross psychor <laughs> stuff, which I want to be clear is good plot and yeah like well-written and, and like good it's just gross uh but psychor is like always gross and it's it's really laying it out how gross psychor is yeah. like that previously we've had we've had a bunch of negative interactions with them and clearly we've seen through the ivanova lens to see you know how badly kind of normal regular folk who happen to be telepaths are treated yeah as opposed to like kind of career telepaths here especially those those scenes with the rogue telepaths telling talia their stories um i mean it's really it's really chilling yeah to us as viewers and really explicitly lays out the kind of shit that Psychor gets up to, like, you know, they're doing medical experiments, they're violating people's autonomy for breeding. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, they're, they're assassinating people who speak out against them. It's, it's real bad. And seeing more perspectives on that is... Mm-hmm. helps broaden the picture of how shitty Psychor is. Yeah. My thought uh, in listening to your summary that I did not write down at the time, but my immediate thought when you were reading your summary was, how is it possible that Bester is not used to people thinking the word murderer everywhere he goes? Or worse. <laughs> or worse. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would think that more or less everywhere – a psychop in general goes, and Bester in particular goes, that like just a wall of fear and vitriol follows him, making it virtually impossible to filter out uh, the, the the negative emotions. But I mean, yeah, for for some of that, that might be at least that it's a group of uh, of telepaths who are projecting that at him. Yeah. Right. Like it seemed. It seemed like it was a bit of a like assault. You know. Yeah. yeah. That it was targeted to be a message 
to maybe try to warn him off or I don't know what the goal was with that, but. Uh, the extent of which we get the, the side course practices, which include, as we've hinted to in the past, breeding programs, experimentations on people, and the implication that that Psychor is secretly killing dissenters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we get a um, there's a there's a telepath in this episode who who's played by a Native American actor. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. Who yes, it relates how his brother decided to take the pills or take the injections and 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 restrain his telepathy but still spoke out against Psychor. and the the overwhelming feeling that you were given is that Psychor killed him through a medical accident yeah, yeah. that one day one day he took his injection Psychor gave him his injection and he didn't wake up mm-hmm. yep it is some pretty chilling shit um and it really lets me wonder, like, I'm interested to see where this plot line goes because, because I know that the series ends and it ends at least somewhat that Psychor has to, I, 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 I'm taking a shot in the dark here, that Psychor is going to be gone at some point. It's going to be interesting to see how that gets replaced in some ending because like the the reason like people acknowledge in the universe that Psychor might have once had a use, mm-hmm. but now it is completely overstated its mandate. Corrupt corrupted, yeah. Uh I'm gonna be honest with you, it'll be interesting to see. I haven't watched season five since it originally aired. <laughs> uh I've I've only watched it a couple of times as well. Um, there's there's an event that happens near the end of season four that is a little bit hard to get past. Uh, I believe in us. I think that we'll all get past it together. Yeah. But um, I don't. But there's a there's an emotional punch, and yeah, it's one of those things that makes makes clicking continue a little bit mm-hmm. difficult. Yeah. yeah. Is it? Is it a spoiler to talk about like the network shenanigans that happened? No, I, I mean I know what that happened. We can we can talk about that. Where yeah, I yeah, think we can they, talk about the network. They originally thought they were going to get five seasons. Yeah, they more or less canceled him, so he cinched in the story to to fit into four seasons, and then he got a fifth season on another network. Yeah. So then he kind of like took some of the stuff that he had pulled out because he couldn't fit it into into four seasons. And then wrote some new stuff and made a fifth season. So the fifth season is a thing. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit separate. It feels a bit more like a related miniseries in some it's, ways. It feels like an epilogue is how I've often thought of it. Yeah. So I haven't watched and there, it. And there's some big, like, since they thought it was compressed into four seasons, there's some really big emotional climax moments near the end of season four yeah. that like are you know, give you a big punch in the gut as one would expect with yeah. this show. And yeah. I, I mention all of this only to say that I know that there is the, the answer to your question with regards to what happens to Psychor is there. 
but I truly don't remember what it is. Nor do I. <laughs> I don't we'll, remember. We'll all discover together. What the resolution to Psychor is. So I know it's there. Yeah, because I think this is like, this is even like, uh, this is, I, you, know, the, the, you know, the biggest issue that people have is privacy. But it's also just like, this is a, I wouldn't say subspecies, but this is a relatively prevalent thing with humanity now. And it's like, you know, there's a significant amount of the population. And um, I, I, okay, I do want to like, I do want to like shout out here that like, this is a cool, th- like we rag on Franklin a lot. I, I don't want to maybe besmirch any of my co-hosts, but maybe just a little too much. Um, <laughs> we, we definitely have a bit here, but he, but we learned that, um, I mean, that he has been doing, he has been secreting telepaths away out of Earth Alliance space since at least the latter parts of the last season. Mm. And that he's been doing this as an active, first he was working within the system, creating a whisper network of doctors, and then like even, and now doing more active work to smuggle telepaths out. Yeah. I think I think Franklin is kind of like the the poem by I believe it was Longfellow of you know when he's good he's very very good and when he's bad he's awful. Yeah. Um <laughs> slay him with poetry. Hit him again. But yeah, I, I like I I do want to acknowledge that because we rag on him a lot, but I think it's like it, it's this is a like this is sort of like a realistic way you would see this sort of thing and like the fact that it's being done by like doctors is very interesting yeah yeah this is this is a good franklin episode and there's a scene where he's calling out sheridan on like that sheridan's like i have to enforce the law and frank's like do you though forget it it currently embezzling from his military budget to pay his rent (laughs) That's a that's a pretty. I'm just saying, it's a little hypocritical. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm actually considering... going to I'm gonna get into this in like the next episode of Well, but Sheridan Sheridan. I don't want to say lies down for for the cycle. Like he's just like I'm going to just let this happen. Well, and and Bester remarks that the cycle thought that Sheridan would be friendly to them. Yeah. I don't know if there's ever an explanation for why everybody seems to think that Sheridan was like a toady for their conspiracy. Yeah, it's he blew up a warship. Everything about him, aside from the fact that he blew up a ship in the war, is is the opposite. Uh, so you know what this probably is. What it probably is. And he he's been out of the rim, so nobody's actually nobody actually like yeah. interacts with him. Nobody has talked with him for four years. They all they remember is this dude from the war who's a hero. They just know that he's been out there like doing his own thing. He's like he's been on the rim. He's gotta be like a gunslinger. He's gotta be like he's gotta hate aliens, right? He nuked him in Bari Warship. And then it's like he's like, ha ha orange gooper. And and we know that he has a reputation for like running a tight ship. Ivanova says that, yeah. and and I think that that might translate into people thinking that he's very rigid and rules focused. Yeah, he is and he isn't. He be he learns to not be. Yeah, and I think I think this is a episode that's 
a big learning moment for him because he starts out with like, I mean, like, I guess the psych is probably not fantastic, but like, I know he's an official representative. Why not? And then Ivanova's like slides file across desk. Yeah. And I he's think a that, murderer. That's why not. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of murderer, I don't think that we can forget the fact that Besser just like kills a guy with a scan. Like, is this a thing that psychops can do? I don't think he killed them with the like with the scan. I think it was I think it was the fact that like this dude had been like we're talking about the fir- the guy in the Mars scene, right? Yeah. Like that's the yeah. So I think it was more to the point that that dude had been pushed to the absolute fucking limit, and and that guy's that guy's body decided dying is better than what's coming next, and just like so peace out. I looked but into Bester this. But definitely pushed him over the edge. I looked into this, and like a sufficiently powerful telepath can can kill people with a deep skin, like. Telepathy in B5 is incredibly invasive and stressful on a body. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you can, uh, a psychop absolutely could kill someone with a, with a deep enough scan, uh, particularly another telepath when another telepath is resisting, like yeah. the stress that puts on the body. Like he probably couldn't just like walk up to a random person that's unshielded and just be like, like you know, pew, squish. That probably wouldn't. It doesn't like my impression from reading the the wiki article yeah. is that 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 wouldn't fly. But a telepath who's resisting, like, yeah, he probably could probe hard enough to to break someone. It's really an interesting bit of lore, though. That you know, I wish I wish that the show focused on that more over its course. In talking about things that I love in this episode, the <laughs> date between Sheridan and Delenn is so fucking cute. And I love how absolutely jazzed Sheridan is at the end of it. Like, he's just, like, he's, like, on fire. He's had, like, the best night of his life. Or he's ready to an- pop into a musical number. Right. Like, it's it's this, like, and it's the, it's the, like, smiley, friendly, happy energy that we've seen from Box Lutner that apparently, like, people didn't like, so fuck them. Yeah. But it plays out so well here that he's just like grinning like an idiot and he's had an awesome night and he's absolutely smitten and it's it's so cute. And then he goes and goes to sleep in his office chair with Ivanova curled up on the couch and she's just like, fuck you, shut up. It's very, very good. I love their relationship. Like they're... They have a very good, like, big brother, little sister relationship. Yeah. And her completely being over his bullshit in that scene is so good. And he's just, like, oblivious as fuck because he's just, like, he's still got, like, Delenn concussion symptoms. And he could not care less. He's completely oblivious. To, to how irritated she is. All he's thinking about is that dress and dumb Mimbari jokes. That's all that's in his head at that moment. It's yeah, very and, good. and he's telling her these stupid dad jokes yeah. that he learned from Delenn. Oh, 
how many Minbari does it take to screw in a light bulb? They'll give up. It's like they'll give up before the before it's all over, anyways. It's just like, yeah. how do the Minbari make jokes about their own failed genocide? That's um not great. I, I do want to say though that like normally I find dates on television to be like me gripping like the edge of something just because it's like usually like uncomfortable to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is good. This is pleasant. Yeah, I I think it might be partly because I don't think that they enter into it thinking that it's a date. No, which makes it all the much better. All, all that much right. better. Right. It definitely yeah. ends as a date. Yeah, it, I think it turns into a date the second that Sheridan sees Delenn in the dress. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's about right. The two of them are are just like chatting like good friends and it feels very natural and it's just so cute. I just love them. Yeah. On Sheridan's stand corner, John, Captain John Sheridan says, fuck landlords. Yeah. I do have beef with his solution, <laughs> which is basically taking Sinclair's very elegant solution to the dock worker problem and doing like the shitty version of it so he doesn't have to pay rent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I did the math on this and this comes out to a little bit over 3000 credits a year between like between the two of them. Uh, so, okay. I would like to ask what's the value of a credit? Good question. <laughs> it is wildly inconsistent. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a total, uh, what can the force do kind of thing? It's, Whatever the writer thinks a credit is worth in the given scene. <laughs> it's a Star Fury. How much could it be worth? 20 credits? <laughs> <laughs> On any given day, you might be right. Yeah. <laughs> well, now I'm curious. <laughs> oh, because if this yeah, were Star Wars, different. they were it, there would be like yeah, an no, official conversion I can, rate. But. I can quote to you the the like the line the like the line price of a T sixty five. Like I'm sure you could, <laughs> right? Because I can, that... I can quote you that people have calculated the gravity on Babylon Five Station. Yeah, as Jude looks up a thing, I'd like to point out something from the episode with the creature of darkness thing. In that episode, a little detail that I love is the windows in the floor. Yeah. yeah. And also, there are very few windows on that station, which makes sense because that's yeah. how gravity works on that station. Okay, I just looked it up because I wanted to see if there was anything on the Babylon 5 wiki or like something that could be sourced from the, one of the roleplay games. There is not a listed lo- like a manufacturing cost for Star Fury, which is... <laughs> I mean, if you're going to release an RPG settlement, why won't you tell me what whatever company makes the Star Fury charges EarthGov for this. It's a state secret, Justin. Sorry, it's the S- it's Mitchell Heyendine. It doesn't say so I can tell you the conversion the exchange rate of credits to a buy matrichates, Brickeri syndacracies, or I'm sorry, <laughs> uh a buy chuck, Brickeri gruel, drazi talk, grome Centauri ducats. Uh no, I do not know the exchange rate to ducats. Which is the only other currency that we actually see. Yeah. So I know a bunch of exchange rates uh, for the league, but I don't actually know 
what they're worth. I apparently <laughs> the Universe Today newspaper costs less than one credit, some amount of millicredits, but that's all I got from the the wiki. So I don't know what the value of of a, of a credit is according to the wiki. Yeah, it's just wildly inconsistent. Anyway, Zathras is going to hate us for this. Garibaldi has like a little speech on the origin of the Psycor of like that we put them, we were scared of them. So we put them all into a little box and now they're running around with the jackboots. And like, it's actually pretty good, despite the fact that you're like, Garibaldi, you'd probably lick those jackboots. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it, it shows how like, Psychor probably did not do this on their own. They probably had some nudges along by some people in Earth Gov who thought, hey, you guys could be useful for society, you know? Mm -hmm. And just further scooched and scooched and scooched and scooched and, oh, that's a little unfortunate. And then we get everybody with a real leather fetish and, uh... <laughs> yeah. I guess not Psychor exactly thing that I wanted to talk about. But so last episode we recorded, we talked about how the intended air order is switched between this episode and Soulmates. Yeah. Uh -huh. Which would make way more sense because in, in Soulmates, Talia is ready to fuck right out of the core. Right. Also, you know, the we get a story in this episode of somebody who is basically forced into or almost forced into an arranged marriage. And there's kind of a telepath breeding thing, mm -hmm. et cetera, as one of the narratives here, which is, of course, like, happens slash nearly happens to Talia, the marriage part, mm -hmm. but not the breeding part. You know, I think that that would have played very differently if they'd been reversed, because it would have been like, oh, oh, I remember that from last episode. Yeah. And much more of a feeling that she, like, got out of that by the skin of her teeth. Yeah, it goes from, mm -hmm. here's an awkward ex, to she was almost one of those people that she that she saved. Yeah. She was one of them. I mean. Yeah, yeah, for uh, sure. With that arranged marriage, and it could, and she narrowly escaped it being a lot worse. Um, so yeah, I, I certainly, if I'm ever recommending people watch the show in the future, I will, I will, I will tell them to reverse the, the order of those two episodes for sure. Yeah. Anything else we want to get off our plate here? No, I think that's pretty good. All right, let's go on to, I feel like this is going to be one of our longer episodes because this is going to be an episode. We've got a lot to talk about. We'll see. We'll see. This is, some of these episodes that are like super plot heavy, you're, it's it's just like, so that happened. So I'm I'm interested to see how much we have to say about this one. So season two, episode nine, The Coming of Shadows, written by J. Michael Straczynski, directed by Janet Greek. Babylon 5 gets a visitor of the week. What? The Centauri Emperor. He, he has left court on Centauri Prime with his prime minister in charge, saying goodbye to him before he departs. Back on B5, Jakar is pissed off, protesting to Sheridan about the crimes the royal family has done to the Nar. Sheridan reminds Jakar that the Emperor has tried to reconcile and offer concessions to the Narn people. He understands Jakar's frustration, but suggests he tries to open a dialogue. Sheridan recognizes that Jakar probably wants to do something rash and warns him against it. 
In Londo's quarters, Lord Rifa has arranged for a private meeting with the Emperor for Londo. He will be giving a speech that is arranged to make the Emperor look weak and set Londo and Rifa up for future success. The Emperor is ailing, and Rifa expects his demise soon, and they will use this to be able to swoop in after. Veer expresses his discomfort after Lord Rifa leaves, which Londo secretly shares. The Emperor arrives and offers Sheridan the hands of friendship and commends Babylon 5 for their work towards peace. Jakar receives a message from the Kari. They have approved Jakar's request to attempt to assassinate the Emperor at the reception this evening. The Emperor summons Sheridan, who asks him why he is here on B5. Sheridan reveals that, in the grand scheme of things, he volunteered for service with Earth Force, and that he wanted to try and make a difference. The Emperor regrets never having any choice in his life, and wonders who he might have been if he had been allowed to make his own way. He speaks that he has one last chance, and he intends to seize it. In Jakar's quarters, he records his last will and testament, as well as a final dictation uh, regarding the assassination. At the reception, Sheridan learns about Centauri-linked telepaths who are in constant communication with the homeworld, veiled women who follow the Emperor everywhere. Jakar arrives at the function, and the Emperor does soon after. As Jakar moves to strike, the Emperor collapses before he can make his move. In Mad Lab, it is revealed that moving the Emperor could kill him. He is close to death. He makes a request of Franklin, whispered in his ear. Rifa and Londo realize that they must seize the opportunity here before other factions vying for power do. Londo suggests attacking a Narn listening outpost, but Rifa protests that it would be too difficult. Londo promises that he will take care of it, and Rifa agrees to this. Londo asks Veer to summon Morden. After some initial protests, Veer relents. As Jakar fumes, Franklin visits him. The Emperor has a message to relay. He is sorry. He had come all the way to Babylon 5 to apologize to the Narn face to face. Part of the message is, uh, quote, We were wrong. The hatred between our people can never end until someone says we're sorry, and then we try and find a way to make things right again, end quote. It was the only chance the Emperor had to do something on his own, to make his own choice, and it had been taken away from him now. Londo dreams during a nap of a great hand reaching out of a star and of dark ships flying overhead, of being crowned sick and old, and of a similarly old Jakar strangling him. We then cut to the Narn listening outpost, attacked by shadow ships and utterly destroyed, with the colony following soon. Londo reports his success to Rifa, and is then approached by Jakar. Jakar is elated, not knowing of the attack, and eager to see reconciliation between these their two peoples. He buys Londo a drink, toasting the health of the Emperor. Londo, stunned, drinks with him. Back on the Centauri homeworld, the Prime Minister of the Centauri is murdered on Lord Rifa's orders. CNC picks up a message from the homeworld's Jakar on an open channel, reporting the attack on the Narn colony. The Centauri have acted quickly and taken the residents there prisoner. Jakar stalks through the ambassadorial wing and is only stopped by a full security team. Jakar pleads to Sheridan, they're doing it again. Step aside. But Sheridan does not. Jakar raises his fist in rage, 
but then collapses in grief. The Emperor is visited by Kosh and Mad Bay, and the former asks the Ambassador, how will this end? Kosh's reply, Londo and Rifa later give the Emperor the news of their attack on the Narn colony. They ask for the Emperor's blessing, and the Emperor whispers in Londo's ear before passing. Londo lies, saying that the Emperor proclaimed for them to continue to take them back to the stars. After they leave Medlab, Londo reveals to Rifa that the Emperor damned both of them. Rifa shrugs it off, saying it is a small price to pay for immortality. Jakar is visited by Sheridan, who invites him to a council meeting. Jakar thanks Sheridan for stopping him, though he it is clearly still wrecked. At the council meeting, Sheridan reveals that they are sending observers to the colony to review the treatment of the population. This gets the Centauri to back down from their forced relocation of the Narg prisoners and allow their return to Nar space. Jakar, however, reveals that the Narn have declared war officially. Back in Londo's quarters, Rifa reveals that they have come out on top, with the late Emperor's nephew taking the throne, who is sympathetic to Rifa and Londo's faction. Rifa promises that Londo will be remembered and praised. Veer is surprised that Londo wasn't assigned to the court, but Londo dismisses it, saying he prefers to work behind the scenes. We also have a small but very important B-plot here today. We get a man who walks through customs, who has been visiting Babylon 5 regularly. He watches Garibaldi and stalks him throughout the episode until the Emperor's reception. Garibaldi catches him, and when he refuses to speak, Garibaldi shoves him into his cell. After a little bit of time, the prisoner speaks with Garibaldi and reveals to him that he was sent with a message. It is a recording of, by God! That's Jeffrey Sinclair's music. <laughs> Sinclair explains that his duties on the Minbari homeworld are much more than ambassadorial now. He warns of a great darkness coming. He explains that the messenger is a ranger, an organization of Earth and Minbari origin, who are preparing an army for the war to come, who will listen and watch. Sinclair asks Garibaldi to help the rangers and offers a warning. Stay close to the Vorlon and look out for shadows. They move when you're not looking at them. After the ranger, we get one last recorded message that he had left with someone on the station. The viewer? Delenn. And that is the coming of shadows. Yeah. It's a big episode. But also, like like I said at the top, it's one of those episodes where it's it's a tight episode and it so much happens, but it's very much a... It's very focused. It's doing a specific thing to move a bunch of it's it's taking a bunch of the plot and pushing it into the next stage. It's starting a war. Yeah. Uh it's very focused on moving the plot into the next stage. So there mm -hmm. it's not like some episodes where there's a bunch of random stuff going on. It's it's everything in this episode is focused on move on moving this one plot point forward. It's a huge episode and like everything that's happening here is it's you get the arrival of the emperor and that it's almost a fake out for what this episode will end up being. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like with, with Jakar preparing himself, making his peace with the universe to assassinate 
the emperor of the Centauri Republic and it being snatched away from him because the emperor is an old man whose health is failing. Oh, yeah. It's one of those things that's like, it is the cheese sandwich of Babylon 5. And that's this, you're hitting on a really interesting point from this because, you know, we have Jakar, who has made his peace with the universe, and he's ready to assassinate the Emperor and start a war. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he knows that if he assassinates the Emperor, it will mean war. You know, Londo acts first. Like, that. that it's this, it makes it such a tragedy on so many levels. Because yeah. we've got the Emperor who's trying to reach out. We've got jakar who can't see at the start of the episode like he can't see past his own rage and then we have him preparing to take drastic action and then being thwarted only for that the ultimate outcome to happen anyway like it's a wild sequence of events yeah andres katzalis just crushes this episode and manages to just absolutely bring the heat uh when he's enraged, when he's crushed, when he's over, you know, embracing the possibility of of hope, it's it really you nailed it, really, Justin. It's tragic this arc that he this whole dramatic ride he goes on in this episode. It is like it is a truly Shakespearean tragedy mm-hmm. yeah. between a man preparing himself for death prison for his place in history being robbed of that chance and then being offered the one thing really that could change his mind and speaking to his to his horrible enemy and he and Jakar is there ready to be like we we're ready to turn over a new leaf we could do this and buying londo the best drink he can buy toasting the emperor's health and you know that there that this is all going to be so bad in five minutes yeah it's all too late it's already all too late it's it's a beautiful scene because just because it's like when i'm watching it like my Fingers are curling into like a couch cushion just because I'm like, no. Yeah. And then just how broken he is when he is stumbling. Like he he is just staggering through the hallway. Yeah. And he's pleading with Sheridan. They're doing it again. Yeah. This is the start of a a hard part of Jakar's story. Yeah. But he's God, his his Jakar's arc is so good. One thing I love about Jakar is there is no Narn whose death he would not feel like it was his own fam, like his brothers or his sisters or his child's. He he's origin he's on the station as an ambassador, but he rapidly becomes more than that, and you can see why in episodes like this because. For him, the war never really ended. And every one of these, every Narn is his personal responsibility. And 
he's going to take that into this next phase, into the war and beyond. And it's going to be a traumatic experience for him going forward. And it's real rich, dramatic fodder. So I feel like this is kind of the first Jakar arc inflection point that, you know, he's been moving forward, but this is the this is the first point at which it like really starts to kick into high gear. Yeah. Andres Katsoulis absolutely knocks every scene out of the park. I mean, he always does. Even even the small scenes, like the the scene at the start of the episode where he's in Sheridan's office and like railing against the fact that the emperor is coming here. He's furious and Sheridan's just like, "No." Like the emperor come come here. Like it's a really good scene and probably my favorite Jakar scene in terms of like the the subtle acting bits is where Franklin is about to enter the uh, Jakar's quarters and Jakar's on the phone with you know somebody from the Kari back home and you know it, hears that it's Franklin he's like oh it maybe it means maybe he's better maybe I can kill him after all um and there's this moment where he turns off the comms walks away and then just like prepares himself yeah so gotta good. chill gotta chill yeah keep it, it's very keep it, good keep it tight and it's uh so that he can be like enter uh, it's just a really good few seconds of cinema or TV or whatever the hell it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's there's a lot of just like there's a lot of like little moments in this episode, which is like, I mean, it, it's there's this is a huge broad brush that this episode strokes with, but like there there's my favorite Jakar one of my favorite Jakar lines for this is I had the dagger in my head and he has the indecency to start dying on his own yeah I was ready I had prepared myself I had made my peace with the universe put all my affairs in order I had the dagger in my hand and he has the indecency to start dying on his own Never in my life have I seen a worse case of timing. Well, you'd think he could have waited a few more minutes before... Who is it? Dr. Franklin. Maybe it's good news. With luck, he's feeling better. All they have to do is prop him up for two minutes. I'll call you back. That's so good. I also like that Jakar, like when he's dictating his will, he leaves the book of Jaquan to Natoth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I find because like she's the she's a lapsed non Jaquan believer. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's I think that's really interesting. And I'm like, there's a part of me that's like, what is the alternate universe where Natoth is the person with the Book of Jaquan, and how quickly does the, does whatever happens with the shadows end if Natoth is in charge? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. One thing I really love about. Jakar is his faith and the way that his faith is portrayed in the show. Mm -hmm. They do faith in this show very well. And I particularly like the way that Jakar is handled. For sure. Mm -hmm. I, I like the way that this episode ruminates on choices as well. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we have 
Jakar who makes his choice only to have it taken away and the Emperor who makes his choice only to have it taken away. And we have Londo where Veer, Veer tells him like, don't make this choice. You don't realize what you're doing. And he says, nope, I realize I'm starting a war. I'm doing it anyway. That they kind of each have one choice here. Yeah, poor Veer. Poor Veer. Veer this is, is such like, a... Veer is like Cassandra. Is that right? Am I, is that the right yeah. one? Yeah, yeah, you're, you're thinking the right one. He is. Uh, he can see all this happening, and he knows that mistakes are being made, and he can't do anything. He's telling Londo, like, you are making tremendous mistakes right now. And Londo's like, la-da-da, don't care, gonna go to war, do 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 yeah. Well, and Londo's like, I know I'm making a mistake. I yeah. know, I know this is a bad choice, and it, which is wild. Yeah, it's 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 Veer is not the rubbernecker who's like looking around to see like he's looking to see the seven car pile up. He is like clockwork orange, forced to watch as his best friend is like making an audition tape for Jackass. Yeah. Except with, like, the the safety of the galaxy strapped to a couple of grenades. Yeah. <laughs> this, that, that analogy went way off the rails there, but <laughs> I'm glad it still maintained semblance. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then the point where Londo's like, if you're not going to go get Morden, I'm just going to go do it. Do I have to do it myself? And Veer's like, fine, no, I'll do it. You know, it's that moment where Veer realizes that even if he were to refuse, Londa would still do it anyway. Yeah. Poor buddy. Poor yeah. good buddy. I really liked seeing Sinclair in this episode. Um, I had yes. not realized every time I watch this show, Sinclair disappears and Sheridan shows up, and I think to myself, this guy. All right. We're we're we've you know. Okay. And then within one or two episodes, I'm like, that's right. I remember why I like Sheridan. <laughs> and then Sinclair comes back in this, like, you see Sinclair's face in this episode and you're like, oh, I miss Sinclair. He's cool. I think that it his transition from military outpost commander to leader of a pseudo-religious paramilitary order could not be more appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. It works. Yeah. I, I remember distinctly the first time I saw it, like, you know. It's like, yeah, that tracks. He's like, yeah, he's like running the Rangers and there's like this distinctly like knight errant quality about the Ranger and he's got this little robe thing on and you're like, okay, so that's happening. And you're like, yeah, it tracks. Yep. The B plot for this does infuriate me because like, why didn't that dude just give Garibaldi the message in the first place rather than, like, dicking around and stalking him? So so here's my thing. Here's my thing. Sinclair has spent the last, I would say, like, three or four months on Minbari, and I think has been, like, thoroughly assimilated their culture, part of which is being cryptic bitches who don't know when, like, <laughs> how to, like, just fucking talk. Yeah, there is, there is no, like, line. Where's the line? Where you're being too cryptic, there is no line. But it's 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 the ranger. It's not Sinclair being cryptic. I know, but he's been trading all of these people. And I have to say, th this means 
I mean, St. Clair's been fucking busy. It's been like four months and he's already like formed an army. Well, my understanding is that the Rangers were kind of sort of already there and he just sort of like picked them up. And yeah, but still, the boy's been gotta busy. go find my era, Duodor, BRB. Yes. Um, fun fact <laughs> yet another thing that, that JMS claims is not a direct uh, oh. Tolkien reference. Oh, the Rangers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, bitch, really? <laughs> oh, buddy. Oh, buddy. I'm sorry for that spike, Zathras, but that appropriately conveys my reaction. Yeah. That, that dude could have, like, not been thrown in a cell if he'd just been like, yo, got a data crystal for you, buddy. Yeah. Um, uh, since we're doing fun facts out of Lurker's Guide, uh, I'll get all of my stuff out of the way. Uh-huh. Uh, this won the 1996 Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation, which I think it richly deserved. Oh, yeah. Uh, on the subject of Hugo Awards, here's some <laughs> catty Star Trek bullshit. From oh JMS. God, I hate JMS so much. Here's a quote that he put on Usenet. What's interesting in noting the number of votes in the nominations is that if we hadn't withdrawn the second Hugo nominated B5 episode, The Fall of Night, DS9 wouldn't have had a nomination at all. They moved into the nomination when we withdrew Fall of Night. You know, you know, <laughs> JMS, you make it really hard to defend doing a podcast about something you are like are, are majorly responsible for. And every time I, like, get into conversation with somebody who talks about any of your shit beyond Fab Five or Sense8, like, they talk about your shitty Superman run, so fuck you. Yeah, <laughs> <sighs> yeah you can you can smell the, the sour grapes about DS9 in that quote. He is such a little bitch. <laughs> yeah. Other fun things, JMS, when shooting the dream sequence... Uh, took Peter Jurassic aside and told him one of the few people in the entire production of Babylon 5 took him aside and told him the enti- almost the entire plot of the show for all intents and purposes uh, so that he would understand how Londo would end up in that throne room with Jakar. Oof. Yeah. I mean, good going. That That's... Great acting on the part of yeah. Peter Jurassic. Yeah. Speaking of the prophecy dream sequence thing, uh, A, I have vindication that the hand reaching out to the stars imagery comes back. Yes. See, all, see, see cross-reference the geometry of shadows <laughs> where the, the techno-mage sees a vision about Londo that is a, a great hand reaching out into the stars. Um, so that comes back. Uh, and there's another, there's another little prophecy ish thing that I think, I think we have to have a headphones off moment for this actually. Well, I was expecting that. So let's, um, let's open the gold channel encryption, gold channel encryption time. <laughs> Activate gold channel one. Okay, so so there's this thing where the emperor is facing down his last chance, right? That mm-hmm. this is his last chance for vindication or like for his soul or yeah. something along those lines. And Londo 
so so the episode where the seer played by Mary Jo Barrett comes in. She yeah. she tells Londo that he has three chances. Right? Yeah. And I feel like that's such a good little parallel there that they're they're in the exact same situation that you're the emperor himself may have had three chances and this is his last yeah. to make things right and not be damned. Yeah. No, that's a really good observation. Yeah. He definitely blew this one. Yep. Poor buddy. Uh, I love that this, I love that they will show pieces of this vision as real scenes later on in the show yeah like the shadow ships pretty much pretty much every single mm -hmm. scene other than the hand reaching out yep which, which comes back in other visions yeah woof the... woof -a -doof -a, as they say yeah yeah all right uh, that's i'm trying to see if i have any other notes oh i have a little i have a little note here which is that at this point, so we've been referring to the shadows and the shadow ships, et cetera, throughout because we've all watched farther than this. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's right. Yeah. But at this point, we actually don't have a name for that species or those ships. And Which so, is buck wild. Yeah. Uh, so we don't know that they're called the shadows. So Sinclair's little watch out for shadows, they move when you're not looking is like very sly that you only realize after the fact that he's referencing an actual alien species called the shadows mm. yeah mm -hmm. who do move act when you're not watching it's a nice little play on words oh yeah something that People who have watched farther can come back to and be like, oh, that's clever. Because, Justin, when you when you first watched this episode, you had no idea that they were called the Shadows, correct? Or, uh, uh, or had the internet told you that they were the Shadows? I mean, it, it's it's one of those things that it's like, I, I'm pretty sure it was an osmosis thing. Uh, but like, yeah. I, I, I knew at least that, like, even if they hadn't been on screen, I'm like, I knew they were the Shadows. At least, probably at least from, like, osmosis. It just definitely fair. Uh, fair. It would have been it would have been interesting back when this first aired, though. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you could sort of like I like I probably like want to call them like the shadows or spiders if I was doing if I if if say if say a Justin back in 1995 was like doing recaps for a Usenet site or something, I probably would have called them shadows or spiders. That makes sense. Yep. Which I think is one of those things that is like, well, let's go on this tangent for a second. I think that naming things is very hard, especially if you want to have a big villain like this. And it's usually like, if you can get it down to one or two words, great. Like, the the, the fact that the shadows don't have, like, uh, nobody refers to them as, like, the Torelli Imperium or something like that. <laughs> yeah. The fact that it can just be like a one word thing and it's a common thing, like I think that helps make them much more scary, much more intimidating. Also, I want to give props to the uh, graphics for this one for how they animate the ships, because we've already talked about like how the shadow ships always look like they're not completely there. But I want to go on for a thing about how they move 
Oh, which yeah, is that they're so always creepy. they're always spinning. Yeah, like they're they're all like they're always moving forward, like they're moving forward, but they're always turning on their axis, or it, so it always looks like they're like tumbling or falling out of the sky. Yeah, whatever they're moving, and it's just a really it's it's a very distinct choice. And it shows off their 3D shape really well, because in any individual frame, they look very 2D. Mm-hmm. And by because they're they're essentially I, not quite black on black, but like, you know, that they're essentially a black form with like some sparkles. A, a black on a slightly darker black. Right. And... <laughs> Uh, and then there we having, go. That's our that's our late Archer reference. Yeah, yeah there we go. Uh, and then by having them like tumble around like that, it really emphasizes the three D shape. Yeah. Um, in a way that like they would look very flat if they were just moving through the frame. So so I definitely like the name the shadows, especially because it gives them a very mythic quality. Like there's mm-hmm. this you know they're they're this ancient race, the ancient enemy. And so giving them a name like the shadows, that's definitely feels like something out of oral history yeah. or the book of Jaquan. Yeah. The idea that they're so old, if they have a name of their own, nobody knows it anymore. They're just a piece of mythology. Yeah. I it's, like that. It's brilliant. I, I really like that. And it, and it, you know, I feel like this show is actually a case where the naming is really solid for everything that all of the major species and all of the ambassadors, et cetera, have good names that are easy to remember that roll well off the tongue, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly within like the main cast, all the naming is really good. Some of the, every now and then you get some wacky stuff, but all of like the main core name, like names are pretty solid. Yeah, I, I think the, the 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 one that like always just like sort of like that I just like phase out on is like the is the various Earth names because there's like five of them and they're all interchanged. Yeah, like oh yeah, they're not used Earth consistently. Gov, Earth Force, the Earth Alliance, uh, and then there and there then there's like what they call like the White House now, which is just Earth Dome. Yeah, Earth everything. Which is yeah, it's Earth 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 Earth. And they're not used consistently as well. Yeah. Yeah, they are not. Which is why you have style guides, people. <laughs> Make yeah. yourself a style book before you do this. And overall, this is, I think, I think this is one of our, like, high points for the series so far. Yeah, for sure. Like, like, def- like I think there are, there are episodes that are, like, maybe more poignant. But this is, like, this is big plot, big hits you over the head with shit. Um, and... We're going to see over the rest of the season, shit's going to get worse. Oh, <laughs> it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Oh, buddy. Oh, buddy. Yeah, you're not wrong. You speak truth of which you do not know. Um, I'm only referring to the end of season two. We have uh, listeners for reference. We uh, I have I've started a few episodes of season three. I'm, I'm like purposefully separating out knowledge of that and doing our recaps of this. Uh, mostly just so that Jude and Anna can laugh at me. Yeah. I mean, the season three intro with just like the Babylon project was our last best hope for peace. 
it failed. Yeah. It's just like, okay, well, I guess we're setting a tone. Yeah. And you had a note, you had a note about that intro. Uh, somebody had a note about that intro. Oh, yeah. Um, I think I have a note on that intro for this episode, actually, or shortly thereabouts, which is, you know, that that we start off season three with, you know, our less best hope for peace. It failed. But this is the this is the moment where the Babylon Project fails is this episode. More or less. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, that war outright war has broken out between the Narn and the Centauri and the Babylon project has failed at this point. Mm -hmm. They tried. Yeah. They did their best or at least we, I'll I'll say that they did a pretty good job. Honestly, the fact that they lasted a year and a half, Mm -hmm. probably better than like what I expected. Well, it's a good episode. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good episode. Y'all should watch it. I do want to toss out the, uh, actor who played the Centauri Emperor, uh, Turon Bay, who isn't really known for anything, I would say. Like, he, he, a uh, much older actor, he was born in 1922 uh, in Austria and immigrated to the United States and was just in, like, a shit ton of, like, 40s movies. And it was just cool looking at him. Um, his nickname amongst Hollywood was the Turkish Delight. Ooh. Ooh, Which uh, I mean, look at look look at look at out of look look at pictures of him from like the the nineteen forties. Um, he definitely, unfortunately, he falls into that stereotype of like actors who are from a certain region would get uh, we'll call orientalized. Um, so like various roles, unfortunate. The man is a cutie, however. <laughs> um, he plays a very good, kindly old man here. Yeah. Like, like, you just want to give him a hug, even if he is the Centauri Emperor. Yeah, I mean, okay, so I do want to, okay, we're, I've got a little loop on this one last thing. But I really do love the scene that the Emperor and Sh- and Sheridan have in, like, that observatory. It's a nice scene, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. just a nice little quiet scene where they're both sharing philosophy and stuff. It also establishes a little bit of world building, which is that there was a planetary draft for the yeah. Earth Mimbari War. Yeah, that's that's a that was a little funky, and yeah, that, that's yeah. uh, but yeah, and and we and there's a there's a good Sheridan line from his father of when you love, love recklessly; when you fight, fight for your life. And I think that's a very good like that that that, that I think that's a very good like summation of the Sheridan we've got so far. Yeah. For sure. Um he doesn't hold back. And I think that's it's a it's a good line that um glad that we got that in there. Especially in a scene with like that's quiet and with somebody so high status. Yeah. The the other good Sheridanism is the you know don't set out to start a fight, but you're gonna damn well finish it. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think fits into that same ethos. All right. So join us next time. We are going to be covering episodes 10 and 11, um, which are going to be Gropos and All Alone in the Night. I am sure that we are going to get somebody doing Gropos. 
<laughs> All right. Until next time, y'all. Be seeing you. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share-alike no derivatives license.